Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of August 21st, 2017. On this week's show, former NFL player Hamza Abdullah and ESPN columnist Howard Bryant will be here to discuss sports after Charlottesville and what the tensions say about the continued unemployment of Colin Kaepernick. Sports writers Michelle Vopel and Pat Borzi will join us for a conversation about the best team in sports right now, the Minnesota Lynx of the WNBA, who won a game over the weekend by 59 points. And finally, we'll talk to Adam Hootnick, the director of What Carter Lost, the gripping new ESPN 30 for 30 about the 1988 Dallas Carter Cowboys, a story of race, education, and the outsized power of Texas high school football. Josh Levine is Slate's editorial director. He is away this week, so there is no repartee to be enjoyed in this space. Unless I reparteed with myself, which seems kind of silly. So let's plunge right into the show. Last week, a group of African-American clergy and educators in Alabama announced a boycott of the NFL. They said that as long as quarterback Colin Kaepernick remains unemployed, they will not watch NFL games or buy NFL products and will perform community service when they would have been watching on Sundays. They encouraged other fans to do the same. The group made its plea in a six-minute video that begins with members pulling black T-shirts over NFL jerseys. Houston Texans, I'm blacking you out. The Atlanta Falcons, I am blacking you out. Washington, I'm blacking you out. Dallas Cowboys, I'm blacking you out. I love that the pastor refuses to say the racist nickname of the Washington team, but the NFL blackout video is much more than sloganeering. It is a passionate statement in support of civil rights and a strong rebuke of NFL ownership and business practices. Here's Pastor DeBlair Snell of the First Seventh-day Adventist Church in Huntsville, Alabama. The African-American community makes up 15% of the NFL's overall viewership. 
And I find it interesting that they made the calculation that states that even though they're going to silence one who stood up for values that have meaning to us, they have an expectation that African Americans are still going to be there on opening day watching and patronizing their product. I'm joined now by two guests. Hamza Abdullah played in the NFL from 2005 through 2011. He was on the Denver Broncos when I wrote my book about the team. Thank you, Hamza, for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Such a pleasure to hear you and see you after all these years. God willing, we can continue to move the conversation forward. Thanks, man. And our friend Howard Bryant, columnist for ESPN and commentator for NPR, is here. Welcome back, Howard. Good morning. Hey, Howard, let's start with you. This video hasn't gone viral, but I think it should. It's really powerful. And last week, the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP also called for an NFL boycott. On Saturday in Brooklyn, about 100 New York City law enforcement officers wearing T-shirts that said, hashtag I'm with Cap, endorsed Kaepernick's protest of police violence against people of color. It feels like in the aftermath of Charlottesville, Kaepernick's story isn't as reductive as it was. Black athlete disrespects flag. Do you agree with that, Howard? Well, I do, but I think it it has very little to do with Colin Kaepernick. I think one of the conversations that I've been having over the last week has been there are certain moments that become flashpoint moments and Charlottesville, thank goodness, has become one of them. Obviously, I think people in the African-American community might be thinking, OK, what took so long? Well, you know, why why Charlotte and not Dylan Roof? Why Charlotte and not Charlottesville and why not some another uh, example? But the fact that it's here, I think, has shifted I think it shifted attitudes. I don't know if it shifted the attitudes over on Park Avenue at the NFL, but I think the thing that I kind of enjoy most about this is the one piece of this story that people haven't paid a lot of attention to, and that is the African-American consumer has essentially been ignored during this entire story when they talk about, well, what fans want. Well, there are a lot of people that support Colin Kaepernick, and, and there are a lot of people that aren't happy with how this has happened, what's happened. So it'll be interesting to see if there is a a price, if there's some buying power that gets used here, because that's the only currency that the NFL understands. Right. And I think that's why I pulled that clip from that video. Uh, The African-American community supports the NFL. They're fans, not to mention that the league is 75% black. Hamza, what do you make of the, the tenor of the, the times post Charlottesville and what Howard said about whether, that was a sort of a necessary or just the happened to be the one event that is pushing the conversation ahead. Well, I think it started with the election. Once the election happened, it kind of a fence erected in between America and you were at one, one side or the other. And then with Colin yeah. Kaepernick, when he took the knee, that got people off of the fence. There were many people on the fence that just said, Hey man, I'm an American. Uh, I'm, I'm not really with her, but this and that. Um, so taking the knee took, took people off of the fence. And then with Charlottesville, it revealed who you were and what you were. It revealed what was deep inside of you. And I believe that some people who want, they wanted to remain silent or they wanted to remain stationary, they felt the call to action like, hey, wait a minute. You know, I, I, I voted for a guy that I didn't think what people were saying was true. But now to see him get up on the podium and not just outright say this is wrong, it made people have to stand up and say, okay, where, where exactly am I on this fence? And all these things that my African-American uh, community members and neighbors and people of color have been telling me, it, is there validity to that? So I think it, it, it's a call to action for everyone. 
There does seem to be, and I think this is important in the NFL context, some coming together among players. Uh, it, we had at least three white players place their arms on the shoulder of black teammates who were kneeling or sitting or raising a fist during the national anthem in preseason. One of them, Chris Long of the Eagles, who put his arm around Malcolm Jenkins, said, I think it's a good time for people that look like me to be there for people that are fighting for equality. Hamza, you know well that it's hard for NFL players to mobilize on social issues while they're in the league. You've got this structure, non-guaranteed contracts, patriarchal control by teams over players, this persistent fear of losing your job. You're a Muslim. In 2012, you and your brother Hussein, who also played in the NFL, decided to take the season off and make a pilgrimage to Mecca, and you didn't get a tryout after that, right? Right, right. (laughs) This issue hits close to home because when I saw Cap didn't get signed, I said it then. I said, Cap is being blackballed. He's being blackballed for the same reason I was blackballed. Uh, Once the NFL is not your number one thing in life, they have to get you out of the facility because if someone, if the you know, like I said, it's a brotherhood. So if I see that, Howard, hey, wait a minute, Howard, he's not really doing what the what the coaches want him to do. He's kind of doing his own thing. He's studying journalism in the offseason. He's going to get his master's. Maybe I need to start doing that. So then all of a sudden now football is not our priority in their eyes. You know, we're, we're, we have a second income. You know, and for me, it was my religion. I said, hey, this is bigger than anything, you know, that I will ever get accomplished. Um, so going through that, and once an NFL team or the organization sees that football is not your priority, then they feel as though they can't control you. And I've actually had a teammate come down and tell me, Hamza, they're afraid of you. And I said, why? He said, because they can't control you. And shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. you know, my career was over. Yeah, and I think what's very interesting about that is the language that we're using. And we fall into language even when the language doesn't benefit us. And when Hams is talking and he's talking about priority, that makes it seem as though you are Im- it's impossible for you to have other interests. And what they're really talking about in terms of other interests, they're not talking about kickboxing. They're not talking about playing baseball, you know, when you're not playing football. They're not talking about doing reality television. They're talking about your brain. They're talking about your smarts. They're talking about your intelligence. What they're really saying is what they don't want you to be is an educated, interested workforce. They don't want a citizen workforce. They want you for your body. They want you to have other interests as long as those other interests also use your body. But they do not want you to educate your mind because if you educate your mind, then you'll see exactly how bad the NFL is compared to (laughs) the workforces and the, the labor practices of other sports. That's the key here. The real thing that bothers me when I start to get all excited about this is when you hear other players, the Ray Lewis's of the world or the Michael Vicks of the world, who begin to parrot that language because they've been in the NFL so long, they don't realize. And even Des Bryant, who just wanted to sort of step away from the from the issue, no matter how he feels about it personally, that's when they've got you. And and it's hard to change. I mean, look at what 49ers now general manager John Lynch, a former teammate of yours in the yep. defensive backfield, Hamza, yep. said in response yep. to Michael Bennett. And Michael Bennett, by the way, is a model human being. Yep. And a little smarter than John Lynch on this subject. Yeah. And I, I, and and here, once and again, here's what yeah. Lynch said, though. He said, personally, when I see that, meaning 
not standing for the anthem. I think that's divisive. I believe this game should be celebrated for what it is. I think it's a tremendous unifier for our country and for the way mm-hmm. things should be. John Lynch went to Stanford. He played in the NFL yeah. not 50 years ago. He yeah, was in locker rooms with politically aware and active players of yeah. color. Doesn't mean he's progressive, but it's still kind of staggering yeah, how but powerful the Kool-Aid is, right? Yeah, but John Lynch isn't the target. John Lynch, once yeah. again, this is what I refer to as distraction. If you phrase the question a little differently, if you said to John Lynch, John, how do you feel about police brutality as a subject? We're not really talking about the flag. And this is where the distortion comes from. As long as you keep the subject on the national anthem, then what you've allowed yourself, what the conversation has been allowed to do is to become a referendum on who's more patriotic and who isn't. And especially that breaks down along racial lines. The white players are defending the flag and the black players are disrespecting it. And that's not really the conversation. So I've always sort of tried to implore people in our business, instead of talking about the flag, you cannot have this conversation without mentioning law enforcement, without mentioning police brutality and about the unarmed citizens that are being shot. And if you don't do that, then you allow yourself to fall back into the who's more patriotic conversation. And that's one that that you always lose, because, of course, everybody here loves the flag. The flag is the symbol of all of this. And if the flag is not living up to the ideal, that is what this is about. But we're letting them off the hook by leaving it as a national anthem conversation. Hamza? Yeah. And I'll uh, to piggyback off what Brother Howard said, one thing that I've been saying and I've been correcting myself is the language that I've used for all this time, because I've been programmed, we've been conditioned Mm -hmm. and programmed uh, to speak a certain way, to do a certain thing. And now we're coming across these planes and, you know, we're, we're figuring out that all these things that we were taught were wrong, you know, and it is wrong um, in a sense that why can't I come to my brother's defense? Why is it that every time that um, we speak about Colin Kaepernick, we're talking about he's not being patriotic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I think it is very key that we hone in on the language that we're using and redirect the conversation back to the original source, the unarmed in, uh, killing, of the disproportionate unarmed killing of people of color by at the hands of law enforcement um, with impunity. Yeah. And that's the other thing, too, is that that's one of the great conversations when you use the term, when you speak their language you do their work. And when I say they, I'm not talking about whites, I'm talking about management. Um, When you use the term, if you're going to take, say, take a Michael Vick and an Ezekiel Elliott and a Ray Rice and an Adrian Peterson and all these guys who have had legal issues and use them in the same sentence that you would use Kaepernick as a quote unquote distraction, these things are not wow. the same. Yeah. No, we but would yeah, never we no. would never use no. them in the same way if we were talking about white athletes or white citizens. No, and nor would we talk about them in the same way if we were talking about anything other than athletes, period. Right. And, right. and but that's because of what Hamza said to start the conversation that they're you know, your focus has to be one hundred percent on football. And this is you know, when when you walk into that room, it's a very interesting thing. We were talking before we got on about how the all this different sports are, are are different when you walk into those those clubhouses. But one thing that is the same, except in basketball, obviously, because it's an 80, you know, 85 percent black league is the clicks. And you walk into an NFL locker room and you see the offensive line is where most of the white players are. And so, you know, and quarterbacks. And so you see those guys sort of hang out and then you see all the DBs hanging out together and the running backs hanging out together. 
And and so, you know, you've got, you know, the white players on defense are usually either safety or linebacker, safety linebacker, and then, you know, inside, you know, tackles or um, nose tackles. So when you start seeing those guys hang out together, you're wondering how much, you know, action, you know, how much sort of cross conversations you're getting. And um, I remember when I was covering the Washington football team, that offensive line was the group that I always had the most difficulty getting to talk to me. Mm-hmm. The only white guys in the room. Everybody else wasn't, it wasn't that difficult. The, the other white guys in the room, of course, are the owners. And, you know, my, my co-host Josh Levine is not here this week, but he wrote this, a terrific essay on Slate last week about Kaepernick's situation, arguing that Kaepernick has won, in some ways, the battle because of what it's exposed about the NFL. And it makes the case that his unemployment, while maybe not de jure collusion, is de facto collusion by this wealthy conservative cartel. The NFL has always been, Josh writes, and will always be a readout for reactionaries. It's also a closed system, one controlled by billionaires whose views are much further outside the mainstream than Kaepernick's. Hamza, how do we how do you penetrate that? How do players begin to take on that? cartel. I mean, you're famous mostly for this Twitter rant you went on in 2013 after you were done saying, fuck the NFL for lying to me about my (laughs) health and fuck the NFL for the contracts that you give us. And it went on and that was your moment of outrage. But there is still that battle to be fought against the the people that control this league. Right. And I'll go back to uh, something that Brother Howard said about the language. And what you just said, Hamza, the Twitter rant that you went on in 2013. See, when we say a rant, we automatically dismiss it. Mm-hmm. That's why in my book, mm-hmm. I called it the Twitter tirade, because if you look at the substance of what I was saying, all of those things are coming to fruition right now, and they're just coming to the light. Right. But the reason I chose to use FU, 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 because I knew I had to say something to catch people's attention, right. but look at, look at the deeper meaning. But moving forward, how do you penetrate it? Money. The only thing that matters to these owners are money. Their bottom line. When we went in to the last CBA agreement, you know, the DeMore said that we were going to do three things. We were going to get guaranteed contracts, lifetime medical, and no two-a-days. Well, which one of those don't cost the owners money? No two-a-days. So you know what they got? No two-a-days. So the only way to affect the owners is their pocketbook. So if all of a sudden, you know, fantasy football numbers start to drop, attendance at the game start to drop, uh, people talking about the NFL on social media start to drop, and now all of a sudden every, every morning show is leading with race in football or Colin Kaepernick, now you have the owner's attention because it's affecting their bottom line. So Howard, this kind of brings us back to where we started and that tape that I played about the NFL boycott by the clergy in Alabama. Do you think these kinds of efforts can be effective and how necessary are they to sort of hit the owners where it matters? Well, they're very necessary because it it goes back to that entire conversation about nothing is effective unless it ends out in the streets. You know, nothing ends, nothing is effective unless you show your face. And I think that all these things together, you've got the police officers supporting Kaepernick, you've got a rally coming up this Wednesday in New York in front of the NFL offices for this issue. I think you've got to stick together as a union. All the pieces matter, as they would say in The Wire, you know, all the pieces matter. And you've got to, the the, the players, I had a wonderful conversation with uh, Reverend Al Sharpton the other day who said, I want to get people out there mobilized in support of Colin Kaepernick, 
but I can't get them mobilized if the players don't do for themselves. How can I ask people to come out in the street if the players aren't going to do their part? So everyone's got to do their part. And so I, I think that I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very optimistic about some of this because I think people are paying attention. The question is going to be how long is this sort of Charlottesville effect going to keep people's attention? And what are we willing to do as consumers if the numbers stay the same? then I don't think you're going to see a lot of, of change. But I think that there are some people who have to make the sacrifice to say, look, my Sunday entertainment is going to be the Major League Baseball pennant racer. I'm going to go take my dog for a walk or I'm going to go do something else. Hamza, go ahead. I'll say that you know, from the player's perspective, um, just the unity, unite, uniting for your brother um, as brothers uh, wanting for your brother what you want for yourself, I think that's very important. But then on the other side, the consumerism for us, you know, cancel your game pass, cancel your NFL game pass, cancel your NFL Sunday ticket. Um, I loved what the pastor said about pouring into the youth. And they said whether Kaepernick gets signed or not, this is something that has been needed in the African-American community. It's something that's been needed in America, period. Our youth, you know, are, you know, millennials don't do this and don't do that. Well, we're not paying attention to the millennials. Let's pay attention to them and let's give them their time. Let's start to listen to them. So I think what, this, what Kaepernick has done is galvanized America, and you have to pay attention. And I pray that what this does, it leads us down the road of seeing everyone and everyone like, you know, you're my brother, you're my sister, you know, the solar eclipse is happening, you know, pretty soon. And on that solar eclipse, we'll realize we're all on the same planet. We all occupy the same space. Why not love for each other what we love for ourselves? Hamza Abdullah played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Denver Broncos and Arizona Cardinals. He is the author of a new memoir, Come Follow Me, the NFL, a transition, a challenge, a change. Hamza, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Howard Bryant is a columnist for ESPN and a sports commentator for NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday. Howard, always good to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the WNBA conversation, a heads up that our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week has a special guest. His name is Mike Pesca. Perhaps you have heard of him. Mike and I... We'll talk about the Major League Baseball initiative that is allowing players to put nicknames on the back of their jerseys. We'll break down some of the top nicknames. To hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year or $5 a month. If you do so, you can get a snazzy Slate tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. On Friday night in St. Paul, Minnesota, the Minnesota Lynx of the WNBA beat the Indiana Fever by a score of 111 to 52. The 59-point margin was the biggest in league history and one point more than the UConn women's basketball team's victory over a team of Italian all-stars in Venice on Friday. That's true. I did not make that up. The Lynx had a letdown road loss in New York on Sunday, but that 
dropped their record to only 22 and six, a winning percentage of 786. They remain favored to win their fourth title in seven years in an enigmatic league that is still seeking its financial and fan footing. Michelle Vopel covers the WNBA for ESPN. She joins us now from Lathrop, Missouri, in the path of totality. Hi, Michelle. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I hope you get some sunlight. Yeah, I do too. Right now it's pouring. Oh, no, no. We, we, we will not be able to tell listeners what happens, but maybe you can update us on Twitter. Yeah. Pat Borzi is also with us. He covers the Minnesota links for minpost.com and he writes for the New York times. Hey, Pat. Hey, Steph. How you doing, man? Doing good. Pat, let's start with you. You were at the game on Friday. The links were ahead 22 to nine in the first quarter. And then they went on a 37 to nothing run. It was unsurprisingly the most consecutive points scored ever in a WNBA game. This is not UConn playing some D3 team. These are professional teams. Sounds like this game was pretty nuts. Yeah. Um, I, it was funny because after the game, I, I went up to Maya Moore, who of course was a star at UConn. And I was kind of joking with her. I said, you know, I would, I was going to ask you whether you'd ever been part of a, a game like this, but I remember where you went to college. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen a pro game like this. Um, covered a lot of NBA in my time, going back to you know the days of Larry Bird and Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale in the late 80s, early 90s with the Celtics. Um, and the league has gotten so much better that uh, something like this is just, just extraordinary. Right, and I think that's the point here, Michelle. It's that, that the WNBA is more competitive and the players are better and the quality of the play has improved over time. And yet the Lynx... Um, while they have gone on a little dry spell the last week, except for this game, they have managed to to create a sort of mini dynasty here. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is, you know, uh, you, you can attribute that to just this group of players who've stayed together now for several years, who understand each other really well, play together really well. And, and obviously the WNBA is different in the whole, you know, concept of free agency. It's not nearly as free or, um, you know, as uh, exciting as it, it is on the NBA side. The money's different and also just the ability to move is different. And that kind of does, uh, you know, uh, help in terms of building a dynasty if you can get a group of players together that want to be together. Right. And, and part of that dynasty, Pat, is Maya Moore. You mentioned Simone Augustus, Lindsay Whale on the point guard, Rebecca Brunson, a forward. Uh, how, how dominant have they been? And you've watched a lot of the games and you've been a, a, a supporter as a journalist in terms of tweeting out about the WNBA and about this team. How good are they? They're as good a team as I have ever been around. And I covered the Yankees when they got good in the late nineties and early two thousands, just uh, the way that they, you know, the, the cliche, the operative cliche today is it's building a culture of winning. A lot of it is really, really hard to do. I mean, as Michelle alluded to the core group of this, and you mentioned, you mentioned them and now Sylvia Fowles, the center is now a part of this, the way that they connect with each other, the way they care about each other, it's all legitimate. It's not bogus. I mean, this isn't a bunch of selfish people who have just decided to stay quiet as long as they win. These are these are people who care enough about each other that in the last winter, most of them decided not to play overseas where the big money is because they wanted to win more championships with this Minnesota team, which is an extraordinary thing. You know, earlier this year, uh, Lindsay Darcangelo wrote a piece for Deadspin that explored why fans of big name college players in women's basketball don't follow those players to the WNBA. And in that piece, uh, she quoted Maya Moore, 
writing on the Players' Tribune in 2015. In college, she wrote, you know you're on national television, you know people are following you, you can feel the excitement, and then as a professional, all of that momentum, all of that passion, all of that support, the ball of momentum is deflating before my eyes. That's really sad in a lot of ways, but but the, there does seem to be this disconnect. We want to watch women play college basketball, at least during the tournament, and at least if they're on UConn, or there's some compelling storyline, but that interest doesn't carry over, Pat. I had a long conversation with Maya about that very piece and about these kind of issues, and I've talked to Reeve about it too. Um, I, I'm probably the wrong guy to ask about this, only because it's a completely different deal here in Minnesota. I mean, this this, this team has a terrific fan base. It's very large. They had over 9,000 people show up for uh, – the game where we're talking about Friday night mm -hmm. when usually on Friday night here, everybody's going North to the cap, you know? Um, and they still had a great crowd and they've had crowds over 10,000 too. So it's working here. Um, why it doesn't work in other places. I'm the wrong guy to ask because I don't spend very much time in, in the other cities where it's not working. Michelle? But, uh, well, there's only 12 teams. And so you compare the interest in college where you have what, over 300 division one teams, you know, basically everywhere you go in college, you have some place close to you that has a division one program and, you know, whether they're good or not, it's another measure, but you're talking about, you know, 64 teams obviously get into the college tournament. Uh, so there's more of a chance of, way greater chance for people to have a local connection to a college program than a league that only has 12 teams. You know, I'm based in Kansas city. I don't have a team within, you know, you know, seven hours to Minneapolis is the closest team to me, eight hours to Indianapolis. So I think that's part of the issue. And the league, you know, tried to expand early, did it too early and has been cautious ever since then about doing it. But at some point, I think for the league to have a greater foothold nationally, you have to have more than 12 teams. You have to have, you know, greater um, exposure for people to be interested in a local team. Pat, you mentioned earlier how some of the Lynx players decided not to go overseas. And that is a huge sacrifice. I mean, they make not just more money overseas, they make way more money overseas. And, and the contrast here is Diana Taurasi, who skipped the 2015 WNBA season so that she could keep playing with a Russian team that was paying her like almost one and a half million dollars more than her WNBA salary. Right. And as Michelle can tell you, um, that Russian team uh, wrote an extremely large check to Diana as a reward for doing that. Um, there was some concern in the league that other players might go the same way, but that hasn't proved to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, and with the Lynx players, generally, if you go play overseas, if you're a, a player with, with somewhat of a name, you can make between three hundred dollars and $500,000. If you're Meyer Moore, you can make close to a million dollars, which is what she was making with a team in China that she was playing for. And in the WNBA, um, the top salary, if you're a veteran, if you're Diana Taurasi, you're making somewhere around – 115,000 for the season. So you make your big money overseas and uh, uh, that's a significant financial sacrifice for these folks who decided not to go. And I wanted to add one other thing on the, on the other point that you were making to, to Michelle, that one reason why I think the Minnesota franchise is working uh, has done has been as successful as it is Lindsay Whalen. She played here at Minnesota. Mm. They drew huge crowds in uh, when they went to the final four in 2000, Four, I think it was off the top of my head. Um, those crowds have since diminished. Most of those fans are now watching the Lynx. 
So I think if you, and I don't know if the league's ever going to do this, but you look at the the schools that draw a bit. Um, there is a team in Connecticut that does pretty well, um, but it's not that close to stores. Um, if you put a team in Waco, Texas, um, that's going to draw well because uh, Baylor draws big. If you put a team in Knoxville, that's going to draw well because Tennessee draws big. Unfortunately, those aren't really big enough markets, and they really have to be for the NBA support. They have to be in NBA markets. Now that that's a that's a business question that the league I think will have to address at some time. But one one area, Michelle, where the WNBA has excelled, and I think one of the reasons for its uh, sort of overall increase in in ratings and attention over the last year is the way it's handled social media and the way that it's encouraged its players to be socially active. Last week, the Washington Mystics and the Los Angeles Sparks linked arms during the national anthem. Players said it was a sort of a general protest against the racism and violence in Charlottesville, also against police brutality, that connection with Colin Kaepernick. The WNBA's president, Lisa Borders, said in a statement, we fully support our players who are offering a demonstration of unity that we hope America can emulate in the wake of the tragic events. The WNBA was not quite so welcoming when the players first came out against police brutality and commenting on the protests after the incidents last year. That's changed. Do you think it has helped the league? Well, I, I think it's, it's authentic. And if there's something I think does appeal to people, it's, it's people, it's athletes being authentic. One of the things that maybe you see as a, a disadvantage with the WNBA, which is a, a lack of people having a lot of personal sponsorships, you know, being spokespeople for, you know, different companies or apparel or whatever, that can be seen as, you know, a difficulty. They're not making that money. They don't have that visibility. On the flip side of that, that means they're not really beholden to a lot of companies. They're not, you know, muffling themselves because they're worried about, you know, upsetting a sponsor. So I think there's a certain freedom a lot of these players feel in just being who they are and what they believe in. I do think there's a culture in, in that if you go across locker rooms in the WNBA, I think this is authentic, that the support for, you know, for, you know, the, the causes that the WNBA players themselves have, have talked about. And then the other thing is, as you mentioned, there was that initial pushback um, that was about apparel. It was about what they were wearing and in and, and ups And then yeah, they wore know, Black Lives Matter T-shirts, right? Exactly. And just plain black T-shirts. They weren't wearing the at that time was Adidas. They weren't wearing the exact Adidas apparel. So that was about a, a, the pushback that, you know, we all know covering sports or anything else, that idea of, you know, you don't want to upset the sponsor. But they're, the president, Lisa Borders, you know, they, they resolved that issue. And she's been very outspoken in support of the players talking about their beliefs. So she's allowed that them to feel like that's a safe thing for them to do as well. And it helps create an identity for the league, allowing players is not only pro- allowing players not to have allowing players to have their opinion and express in this way. It says something about who this league is. And I think it also dovetails with the way that Adam Silver has has handled his approach toward players and social activism. Yeah, I think that's exactly that's right. And and so I think that's something that you see a lot of these WNBA players they're really passionate and they're also really educated. And I don't want this to sound bad. Like I'm, I'm being disparaging toward anybody else, but you know, the vast majority of these players are college graduates. They've traveled all over the world. They're very educated people. And so when they're using social media and talking about a lot of causes, there's some really, really eloquent people. And I think that 
that helps them get the message across very well and, and helps, you know, in terms of the profile of the league. All right, Pat, I'm going to let you finish up here. We'll go back to the links. They scored 64, 61, and 61 points in losing three out of four games in the last week. Uh, they've had a couple of injuries. Can they recover and win uh, another championship? Yeah, they can. Sure, of course. Um, you know, Lindsay Whalen is the key one. She uh, uh, broke a bone in her left hand a couple of weeks ago. They expect her back from the playoffs. Rebecca Brunson, who's the best offensive rebounder in the history of the league, uh, sprained an ankle. Uh, she didn't play the other day either. <laughs> Neither one of them played in the game that they uh, that, that they set all the records. Uh, Whalen's a key player for them because she basically sets up their offense and uh, uh, does all the talking on the court and, and makes sure everything flows correctly. So that's a big loss for them. Uh, the bigger question is whether they're going to be able to win enough games. I think six games left, win enough games the rest of the way to uh, secure home court for the rest of uh, the home court through the playoffs. They got to play LA, who was a defending league champion who beat them in a terrific five-game series uh, for the championship last year. They played them in L.A. Sunday. they got six games left. Most of them are winnable. If they can uh, get through this with a, with a game-and-a-half lead and a game-in-hand on L.A., then uh, you know they've got a chance. Probably going to be, and you know, Michelle can speak to this too, I mean, most people think that it's going to be L.A. and uh, the Lynx in the finals again, which would be uh, a terrific series again. Pat Borzi writes about the WNBA for MinPost.com. He contributes to the New York Times. Michelle Vopel covers the WNBA for ESPN and ESPNW. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Steph. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1988, the Dallas Carter Cowboys became the first all-black inner-city team to win a Texas high school football championship in almost 40 years. But the team would be remembered not for what happened on the field. On the eve of the playoffs, during the season chronicled in Buzz Bissinger's bestseller, Friday Night Lights, an anonymous caller alleged that Dallas Carter had changed a player's grade in Algebra 2 and that the team should be declared ineligible. That set off a cascade of events that has made the story of Dallas Carter a symbol of the powerful forces of race and football in American life, especially in Texas life. It's the subject of a riveting new ESPN 30 for 30 documentary titled What Carter Lost, which debuts on Thursday. Let's listen to a clip. This is a story that should have been just about football. Our team, our town is better than your team and your town. Hi, it's good for 148 North St. Andrews. To have it turn into what it turned into 
Ah, it's, it's just so regrettable. Adam Hootnick is the director of What Carter Lost. He joins me from New York. Hey, Adam. How are you doing? Good. Adam, the voice we heard in that clip belongs to Randy Galloway, the longtime Dallas Morning News reporter and columnist. And regrettable is about the gentlest word that I think he could have chosen to describe what happened here. The story begins with all-black Dallas Carter going undefeated in the regular season in 1988. Then comes that anonymous call to education officials. Pick it up from there. Yeah, so it's the few days before the Texas high school playoffs are scheduled to begin. A call comes in to the University Interscholastic League, the organization that oversees uh, high school sports in Texas. And suddenly, Carter, which is the prohibitive favorite to win that season, though Carter was not a historical power, they were some, something of an upstart at this point. And suddenly, Carter is told the night before the first playoff game is supposed to happen that they have been declared ineligible. And they immediately went to the commission and fought it. And the game was played that first playoff game. Yeah. And the first decision was made by the superintendent who initially took at face value the conclusions of the investigators who who first showed up at Carter, but within a day realized that there was a lot more confusion and uncertainty about whether Carter should, in fact, be declared ineligible. So the first game that Carter plays in is a reversal by the district superintendent. Right. And the racial implications here were instant and clear from the start. Parents and administrators at Dallas Carter saw the attempt to derail the football team as motivated by race and race alone. And I want to play one other clip. And this is Jean-Jacques Taylor, a Dallas sports talk radio host. He grew up in a wealthy Dallas neighborhood and he, he talks about the experience of football and race in Texas. Whenever you've got tradition, and we're keeping it real, especially when you've got white tradition, you can lose to another team like yourself, but you just can't fathom losing to a bunch of niggas from the city. And the inescapable conclusion, whether I think, whether you believe that a kid's grade was changed or that the education of Dallas Carter football players was less than ethical, is that this only happened because these kids were black. Because in Texas high school football, kids all over the state were and probably still are getting some sort of preferential treatment in school. And this becomes the arc of the narrative as this case proceeds through the educational system and then through the court system. As well as through the media. I don't think it can be overstated that the way the story was talked about in the press had a big impact on how it was perceived citywide and statewide. You know, not just within the educational system and the legal system, but the media. And there's also a football politics hierarchy that exists. And I think there are a lot of other schools that were historical powers that were used to being in these playoffs and used to making it to the late stages of these playoffs. They were all used to seeing each other and they weren't used to seeing Carter. Right. And one of those schools was Odessa Permian that is the subject of Friday Night Lights. They ended up losing to Carter in the semifinals of the state tournament. And by that point, the cloud over Carter was intense and kind of amazing. You know, these kids were buffeted week to week by the media, by legal proceedings, by their parents and lawyers standing up in hearings and talking about what was happening to them. I mean, it, it's hard to fathom the pressure and the intensity that was being placed on the kids and on, on the school. That's right. And I think that is only intensified by the fact that the kids and this team 
come to represent something much more than just is Carter going to get a state championship? Right. You know, and that's part of what's at the core of the story is just understanding how central football is to community identity in Texas. And then, yeah, like, like you said, as the story takes on these racial uh, dimensions, as well as sort of city versus suburb or urban versus, you know, East Texas and West Texas regional powers, there's a lot of power structures that come to play here that goes well beyond just, again, which team is going to win a football game. Right. And it also goes well beyond the idea of whether it's right to give kids special treatment and to let them cut corners academically. I want to read a short passage from Friday Night Lights. Bissinger writes about the culture at Dallas Carter. And he says, if Gary Edwards, who was the the kid in question who had his grade allegedly changed, if Gary Edwards and his friends felt like missing class and going to the lunchroom, they went to the lunchroom. If they were bored and felt like leaving class early before the bell, they just got up and walked out before the bell. Bissinger quoted another player saying, sometimes we wouldn't even take our exams. We'd just get a grade. I was getting 80s and 90s, whatever. They just gave me a grade. The race element, the racial component of this tended to overwhelm this larger question of how are we educating or failing to educate football players in Texas? What is important here? Absolutely. And and Dale Hansen, who's one of the other sports journalists who's who's in the film, you know, he, he would talk to me about how much it blew his mind that it was such a controversy within Texas that uh, 70 percent was was not, not a passing grade, but, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that that was what people would fight over. But yeah, I mean, those kinds of things, I think that that Bissinger talks about, I think it was pretty well understood that they went on at at many, if not most schools. Many, if not most people who have gone to public high schools in the U.S. know that there are often different standards for people who are high profile athletes. And And you're right, that is one of the underlying questions in this story. And I don't think that's necessarily changed so much since then. No, I don't think it has either. Um, And I think no matter what you believed at the time or now, 30 years later, about Gary Edwards' algebra grade, the way it was handled had to be bewildering to these teenagers. And it had to reinforce the idea for these black kids that the man was coming after them. I mean, fans of other teams were holding signs, as you document in the film, holding signs at their games that said, Gary, can you read? And dumb niggers and fans threw batteries at these players. Yeah. And again, uh, it wasn't just what fans at the games were doing. You know, you, in, the, in the documentary, you see cartoons that were in the newspapers not necessarily with racial epithets in them, but not too far off making those same kind of insinuations, you know, can you spell touchdown? This is pretty widespread, the the issues that are implicated once this turns into the media firestorm that it does. Right. And, and everyone kind of loses focus of the fact that are we doing the right thing here? Even the parents of the Dallas Carter kids who had to know that their kids were getting special treatment, they're not questioning that anymore. They're questioning the process. And ultimately, a judge ruled that there was no evidence that Dallas Carter had fudged the grade and granted a temporary restraining order, which allowed Dallas Carter to keep playing the, in, the, in the football tournament. They beat Odessa Permian, Bissinger's team, in Friday Night Lights in the semifinals. And then they won the championship. And many of these players, and this is part two of the story, and this is the dramatic turn that if you don't know the story of Dallas Carter is going to shock you, they did not handle success well, to put it mildly. Well, so let me give you two 
sort of little clarifications that I, that I would offer. One with relationship to what you said previously about parents knowing their mm-hmm. kids were getting special treatment, which I think is probably true at the same time. I think it's really important to note that these same parents, both in it, with respect to Gary's specific grade in the algebra class, but as well the, the parents with regard to the curriculum and the academic mm-hmm. program overall, were very involved in trying to make sure, hey, we are middle-class successful parents, and these what we're seeing in terms of test results, in terms of our kids' performance in school, this was something they were very engaged with well before there was a football Right, and I think that's an important point to make, Adam. You're right, because this was not some low-income urban high school. These were professionals. These are parents with college degrees. There were doctors, and these were kids that were very concerned about their children's education. Exactly. The parents were concerned. So again, I think there's a lot of gray area where was it clear that if you're a football player at Carter, certain things are going to be easier for you for sure. Was it also the case that there was an engaged parent base that was paying attention to what was going on academically and wanted to see their kids get educated? Well, I I think there's no doubt that that was the case too. Um, The question you asked about when the story takes a turn, I think it's one other thing that's really important to keep in mind is when it takes a turn, the bad decisions get made by a relatively small number of players. On the team, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so whatever conclusions we can draw about the impact of being on this pedestal and the impact of this roller coaster season, one thing that history hasn't done well is remind us that most of these kids did everything right. But that's not the story we remember. And that's not the reputation that Carter maintains. And, and, and I understand how that happens. But part of what I wanted to do in this film was make sure we were providing a platform for all the guys who went on to college and then had to contend with people calling them thieves and cheaters and whatever was not at all fair to them. Well, we haven't even talked about what actually did happen that started with a couple of kids on the team who had been playing, shooting dice in the bathroom at high school. The stakes got bigger and bigger. They needed more money. And ultimately, a group of Carter players wound up committing more than 20 armed robberies over six or so months, stockings over their heads, pistols in their hands. And the kids say, and, and you talk to, I think, all of the players that ultimately were convicted and a handful of them were imprisoned and they were sentenced to 13, as much as uh, 25 years in prison. You talk to them and 30 years later, they admit that they thought they were invincible. Let's listen to one more clip from what Carter lost uh, with several of the Carter players talking about this. My parents raised me the right way. They raised me to, to be right and to do right. I chose to do wrong. I heard it from Coach James, I heard it from my mom. They was all telling me the right things to do. But when you that good and you are All-American, and you're doing all these things and people are giving you all this. It's hard to listen because you think you're doing the right things already. I was trying to prove myself to, to the friends that I was hanging around with. We kind of felt like we could get away with anything or we could go out and, and do anything. And we were on top of the world because of the way we were being treated. And I started thinking I was bigger and beyond the law. I guess you can say I, I lost it, I guess. Adam, this is heartbreaking. I mean, the and the unanswered and I think maybe unanswerable question is how much the way that the Carter players were treated, the way football players in high school in Texas and in other places are treated, the way they're put up on this pedestal, how much did that contribute to them feeling invincible? 
and you know them being treated not just as special athletes but also as pawns of a screwed up education system how much did that contribute to what happened to them do you think did you draw a conclusion the conclusion is that was definitely part of it but i think it's not all of it because if it were then every time you saw kids who were elevated to that level of of fame and celebrity and within their communities we we'd be seeing kids doing stick ups all the time and and that doesn't happen however do you see plenty of kids who are not understanding what consequences mean cuz somebody is always there to get them out of trouble do we see often star athletes get screwed up because they didn't understand consequences for sure why does Jesse Armstead make the decision not to do it and and another guy makes the decision to do it right and Jesse Armstead of course goes on to a what 12 year NFL career yeah and so i think parents play a role and school plays a role and the media plays a role and the pop culture plays a role and individual maturity and character plays a role. I wish there was a firm conclusion that you could draw. I think when you look at the lives that these guys have all lived afterward, nobody's ever gotten in trouble again. Right. And and that really, I've got to say that really leapt out at me because six players were convicted. One got probation, five went to prison and you interview all of them, I think, right? Did you, you yes. talk to all the players? And the cooperation you received here is kind of stunning. I mean, the willingness of these men to relive this painful and embarrassing and criminal period in their lives says something about who they became. And like you said, none of them have gotten into trouble at all since, which makes the film, as I watch the end of it, kind of redemptive. I mean, you also interviewed their victims and people that felt traumatized by the robberies. But there is a redemptive quality here. They all rehabilitated their lives. And a couple of them probably would have made millions of dollars in the NFL. But I was really impressed by the the distance that they were able to achieve and the humility and regret which they were able to express. Yeah, I was too. And I think that's one of the reasons I believed this was an important story to tell and to tell in this way, to give them the chance if they wanted it to tell their story in their words and to let people just see and get a feel for who these people were. Because I think until that happened, the community was going to continue to be labeled by some headlines and some misunderstandings that started 30 years ago. And and when I say misunderstandings, I mean of the character of not just these guys who made the mistakes, in fact, not even primarily the guys who made the mistakes but the rest of the community that ended up sort of getting painted with the brush that six guys who made mistakes did. Adam Hootnick is the director of What Carter Lost. It debuts on ESPN on Thursday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You should definitely check it out. Adam, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. And now it is time for After Balls. And this week, I would like to welcome in to the studio our intern, Max Cohen. Hey, Max. Hey, Stefan, how you doing? Doing good. Max is off to start his freshman year at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, where if he's like me, he will spend the next four years working mainly for the Daily Pennsylvanian. Max, when you become sports editor of the DP, here's what I need you to do, all right? Okay, tell me, Stefan. I need you to revive a feature called Quaker Oats. This was a little box of leftover news nuggets, snippets, announcements, but most of all, inside staff jokes. 
where you refer to everybody by their staff nickname. So it's Quaker Oats. You got it, Max? I'm writing it all down. Quaker Oats. Max is going to, in Slate, hang up and listen. Intern tradition, Max is going to grace us with an afterball, but I'm going to go first. Max, you know what to do. Stefan, what is your Quaker Oats for this week? Well, there's been a lot of talk about statues in the past week. But it's not just statues of Confederate generals who fought to preserve the institution of slavery that were erected during the Jim Crow era to further diminish and threaten blacks and empower whites. There are terrible statues right here in the world of sports. Let's begin here in Washington. The local football team left RFK Stadium for the suburbs 20 years ago, but near the entrance to RFK still stands a 10-foot-tall monument featuring a bronze bust of team founder George Preston Marshall. Marshall was a racist. Uh, Washington was the last NFL team to sign a black player 26 years after everybody else. Under Marshall, the team's fight song included the line, Fight for Old Dixie. Last week, post-Charlottesville, the Oneida Indian Nation asked for the monument, which belongs to the city, not the team, to be removed. The most notorious statue in college football was, of course, the seven-foot likeness of Penn State coach Joe Paterno. The school did remove that in the aftermath of the child abuse scandal that wrecked Joe Pa's legacy. Ohio State waited until long after coach Woody Hayes' career ended with him punching a Clemson player during the 1978 Gator Bowl to honor him in bronze in 2013 on what would have been Hayes' 100th birthday, and a nice round 25 years after the punch, the school unveiled an eight-foot-tall Hayes, bent slightly at the waist, like he's letting one rip. Baseball has by far the most statues dedicated to assholes. I think Yankees owner George Steinbrenner should be in the Hall of Fame, mostly for spending freely at the dawn of free agency. But is he statue-worthy? Only in a world where the family of the blustery and egocentric proto-Trump still owns the team, which it does, so the boss towers dictator-like outside the team's spring training stadium, which is, of course, named for him. After the Twins moved into a new stadium a few years ago, former owner Calvin Griffith was statued alongside Harmon Killebrew, Rod Carew, and Kirby Puckett. In 1978, Griffith said he had decided to move the franchise to Minnesota from Washington in 1961. Quote, when I found out you only had 15,000 blacks here, black people don't go to ball games, but they'll fill up a wrestling ring and put up such a chant. It'll scare you to death. We came here because you've got good, hardworking white people. The Atlanta Braves' old stadiums featured a big statue of a sliding Thai Cobb. New research indicates that Cobb might not have been the racist and misogynist he was accused of being. So maybe a Cobb statue is fine. This one, however, was erected when people did think Cobb was a racist and misogynist. It did not move with the Braves to their latest new home. Shoeless Joe Jackson, banned from baseball in the 1919 Black Sox scandal. But he has a statue. Granted, it's at the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum in Greenville, South Carolina, where Jackson lived, and the museum is dedicated to clearing Jackson's name. Residents of the town donated $60,000 to build the statue. Finally, a non or future statue. A few years ago, some San Francisco Giants fans did a Kickstarter to raise money for a 12-foot-tall statue of Barry Bonds. The Kickstarter did not reach its goal, but last year the Giants said they were open to the idea of adding Bonds, who hit a lot of home runs, possibly while taking steroids, to the current statue lineup of Willie McCovey, Juan Marichal, 
Orlando Cepeda, and Gaylord Perry. I say yes to the Bond statue, but two statues, a before and after of Bonds, physically, size-wise. And yes to all of the above and other statues, as long as they are put into historical context. So Woody Hayes has to be statued punching Charlie Bauman. George Steinbrenner has to be handing cash to Howie Spira. Pete Rose, give him a statue, sliding headfirst while holding a betting slip. Lance Armstrong riding a bike with a bag of blood dangling from one arm. This would be a good way, in fact, to handle all statues because statues of actual humans who are flawed are almost always pretty dumb. You know who else has a statue? OJ. OJ has a statue. It was in his house. It is now owned by Flavor Flav. True story. Flavor Flav owns the OJ statue. Max, what is your Quaker Oats? If you watch international soccer, the scene is a familiar one. The millionaire players stride onto the perfectly manicured field. Game faces hardened and ready for battle. One hand is tightly clenched, and the other is gripping the hand of a little kid. This little kid is the player escort, also known in soccer lingo as a mascot. The first recorded instance I could find of mascots is a 1999 FA Cup final between Manchester United and Newcastle. There are just two kids, one for each side. A YouTube video shows no hand-holding. Instead, the boys carry those team flags that captains exchange before matches. Man U manager Alex Ferguson gently nudges his mascot to the front of the line. It's a sweet scene. A year later, a full complement of 22 mascots escorted the starters at the European Championship final between France and Italy. Then, in the lead-up to the 2002 World Cup, FIFA formalized the practice in a campaign with UNICEF called Say Yes to Children. It was a classic FIFA move. Look at these cute kids, not this rampant corruption. Cynical or not, I don't care, because I was once a mascot. I was 10, and my family was living in London, and I was a rabid fan of Fulham. Clint Dempsey was playing for the team and was my hero. My family's weekly trips to Fulham's home ground, Craven Cottage, were the highlight of my young life. And at the start of the 2010 season, I picked Fulham's away match at West Ham United as a must-see game and convinced my parents to buy tickets. As I trudged home from a school soccer match that fall, my mom greeted me with amazing news. Fulham had called and asked me to be the mascot at the West Ham match. Apparently, I was one of very few kids my age signed up to attend, which was understandable. West Ham is a storied club whose best days were in the 1960s. Until last year, the Hammers played at the Bowling Ground in Upton Park, a dicey East London neighborhood where the team enjoyed the support of the white working class. On the big day, I arrived at the stadium dressed in my new Fulham kit. I was a sole Fulham away mascot among 11 West Ham mascots. We had a short training session with a vaunted West Ham Academy. And then I was ushered into the away changing room. And there were my idols. The manager, Mark Hughes, a legendary ex-player for Manchester United, was instructing players. Veteran Australian keeper Mark Schwartzer strolled out of the toilets wearing nothing but compression shorts. Dempsey was getting a massage on the physio table. When he heard my accent, he exclaimed in his Texas twang to fellow American Eddie Johnson, this kid is the first Yank mascot we ever had. Each player autographed my jersey. It was a dream come true. Next came the essence of mascotism, the tunnel lineup and walk onto the pitch. The Fulham captain was hardened but cerebral English midfielder Danny Murphy, whose job it was to hold my hand. He gave me a gruff, you all right, and spit right onto the tunnel steps. We walked into a cauldron of noise. 
West Ham's theme song, I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles, played as Murphy and I exchange a couple of passes on the field. I made sure to bounce on my toes and deliver the captain pinpoint passes. After photos and handshakes with the captains and officials, I took my seat in the away section. My fellow Fulham fans looked at me with a mixture of wonderment and jealousy. Dempsey scored the opening goal despite taking a vicious elbow below his eye. A massive smile was plastered on my face the entire match, and not even a second-half equalizer by West Ham could tarnish that day. We moved back to the States a couple of years later. From there, I watched as Dempsey transferred to Tottenham, failed, then moved back to the MLS, Fulham fell out of the Premier League, the bowling ground was torn to the ground, and West Ham now sell mascot packages for over 500 pounds. One thing that hasn't changed? My love for the cottagers and my unending pride at being a mascot. Don't be a mascot when you go to Penn. <laughs> I knew the mascot at Penn, the Quaker. You can do better. I can do better. All right. Max, thank you. That is our show for today. Our producer is Afim Shapiro. Our intern is Max Cohen. Good luck, Max. To listen to past shows and to subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. You should also check out, I have to ask, Slate's weekly interview podcast hosted by Isaac Chotiner. In recent episodes, Isaac has interrogated Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept, Turkish author Orhan Pamuk, and Huffington Post editor Lydia Polgreen. To get new episodes each Thursday morning, go to slate.com slash ask and subscribe. I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.